Would you open your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 6 this morning? 1 Samuel chapter 6. I grew up in the 60s. The 60s uh, sort of made a mark on me when I was uh, in high school. It was the first part of the 60s and uh, the last part of the 60s I went into college. It was in the 60s a whole bunch of radical stuff started happening in this country. You, Some of you remember that. 1960s people, for example, began to wonder publicly where and whether God is able to speak. Uh, some of you who were around at that time may remember that there was a song entitled, Who Will Answer? It was a song about God, and one of the stanzas went like this. And remember, this is the 60s, so they sort of wax eloquent in their songs. Is our hope in walnut shells worn round the neck in temple bells or deep within some cloistered walls where hooded figures pray and halt in crumbled books on dusty shelves or in our stars or in ourselves? Who will answer? Another example is from a popular movie at the time that included a scene with this sort of lovable, not-so-lovable, scampish, escaped prisoner. And he was trapped in a church, and he's surrounded by guards, and such a desperate situation. I mean, who would kneel to pray? And so he does. And his prayer goes like this, and I'm quoting exactly, Hey, old man, you home tonight? It's about time we had a little talk. I know I'm a pretty evil fella, killed people in the war, and got drunk and chewed up municipal property and the like. I know I got no call to ask for much, but even so, you got to admit, you ain't dealt me no good hand in a long time. I got to tell you, it's beginning to get to me. When does it end? What do you have in mind for me? What do I do now? And then he kneels and he prays and there's silence and he sort of peeks up to the in a corner of the church building and he says yeah that's what I thought and in the very last scene uh, this prisoner steps in front of a window and shot and it's sort of the movie sort of screams to make you say isn't that just like God he may actually exist but he's never really around when you need him well, we'd probably frame those questions a little bit differently today. We've moved on from the 60s, but essentially we have some of those same questions, don't we? Where in the world does God speak? Or maybe better, I could frame it this way, how does God speak to me in this world? And that brings us to 1 Samuel chapter 6. Because I think the theme of 1 Samuel chapter 6 touches on that question. In fact, it's summarized, it's found, it's focused on this continuing story of the inconvenient ark that we've been reading. Pastor Rick has been leading us chapter by chapter, starting in chapter 4, then we looked at chapter 5, chapter 6, all about the ark. In chapter 4, the ark, you remember, was something like a good luck charm. The Israelites thought, well, we need to go to battle against the Philistines. We'll take our good luck charm with us into battle. And it didn't work. They lost. Well, okay, the ark's not a good luck charm. 
the Philistines who won that battle think of the ark as a trophy. They pack it home, put it in their temple, and, okay, now this proves that our God's bigger than your God. And we learned last week, no, that's not the point either, chapter 5. Well, if the ark isn't a good luck charm, and if the ark isn't a trophy signifying that God has been defeated, what in the world is it? That's the question that's before us, I think, in 1 Samuel chapter 6. And to answer that question, let's go back and review a little bit of things about the ark. Well, I'm going to show you some pictures here. First thing we know about the ark, and I think Pastor Rick mentioned this last week, is that basically it's a box, about two by two, and it had some place for handles. I came up with this picture. Remember this picture? Raiders of the Lost Ark, Indiana Jones. The Ark of the Covenant. Well, you know, that's a pretty, pretty good likeness of the Ark. It's a box. It's all covered in gold. It's got these poles that you can carry it with. Now, on the top, if you can make that out, there are these two angelic figures up there. Those are cherubs. By the way, in the Old Testament, the plural for what we would use an S, they use I-M, so it would be cherubim. Just means cherubs. Just means there's two of them. There's two cherubs up there. They're looking at each other, and their wings are sort of scattered, you know, across the box, covering the top of the box. Well, um, this ark, next picture, please. This ark uh, served as sort of an advanced scout for the Israelites. That's why they were using it when they went into warfare. You see, the priests would carry it in front of the tribes. In this particular picture, that's probably the crossing of the Red Sea there. The priests would carry this ark, and it would go out in front of them. And whenever they would march uh, with the ark, somebody would say, Rise up, O Lord, and may your enemies be scattered. And then after the war was over and the Israelites won, then somebody would say, whenever it came to rest, Return, O Lord, to the countless thousands of Israel. That's sort of the symbol that they went through with the ark. So uh, it was this guide. It was sort of a, a, a way of showing them where to go, sort of a scout. Now the third thing that we can learn about the ark is that it was also a sign of God's presence, especially the place where God would speak. A couple more pictures here. Here you see probably uh, Moses and Joshua, I guess. Uh, and when they would go in the tabernacle, they would bow before the ark. And Numbers chapter 7, verse 89 says, Moses would hear the voice speaking to him from above the atonement cover on the ark. Well, there's no figure above that atonement cover there. That's really interesting because, next slide. Here's another drawing that we have that came from about the 10th century B.C., about the time of King Solomon. This is what would have been above that ark if it had been in any other culture. In Israel, there's no figure there because God's invisible. But in other cultures, you see the angelic figures. They're standing differently on the side. There's a throne. And then there's this person sitting. That's the king. And then beneath him is this box. Well, that's the Ark of the Covenant. So the ark represents the king present in his throne room, directing the affairs of the universe, speaking to people. So, with that in mind, I'd like to suggest to you that chapter 6, the ark is one of the means that King God used in the Old Testament to reveal himself and his will to his people. It's about the speaking of God. So the ark is a pointer, I think, to where and how to listen to God in Old Testament ways. Uh, Now, moving from lowest to highest, uh, the ways in which God speaks, 
1 Samuel chapter 6 begins to give us some of those pointers, some of those indications, some of those ways that God did speak in the Old Testament. It's going to remind you a little bit of Hebrews chapter 1. It says, in many ways and in many forms, God spoke to the prophets in the Old Testament. New Testament, He speaks to us through Jesus. Well, here's some of those ways and some of those forms. And the first one you'll find in chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. When the ark of the Lord had been in Philistine territory seven months. Now, there's a story behind that story. It's been there seven months, but it's been causing trouble in the land of the Philistines for seven months. In fact, there's a subtle shift I want to show to you that gets us to this first point. Notice the subtle shift. Look in 1 Samuel chapter 5 and start at verse 6. It says, The Lord's hand was heavy upon the people of Ashdod. Ashdod is one of the cities of Philistine, of the Philistines. It says the Lord's hand was heavy upon the people. Remember Pastor Rick saying last week it may have been something like the bubonic plague even that struck the people. They were experiencing these growths under their arm and in certain places and mice and rats were associated with this. But there was, there was death. There was destruction there. Now notice what it says in verse 8. So they called together all the, what's the word? Rulers. Now isn't that typical? We get in trouble, the first thing we want to do is to elect a ruler, to get a ruler in place. We go to our political sources. The rulers didn't know what to do, they just sent it to the next town. And then they sent it to the next town, and the next town happened to be Ekron. Look at about the middle of verse 10. The ark of God was entering Ekron. The people of Ekron came out and said, They brought the ark here. Get rid of it, they want to say. Look at verse 11. So they called together all the, what's the word? Rulers. Now look at chapter 6, verse 2. After seven months in their land, the Philistines called the, who do they call? The priests and the diviners. Now do you begin to see the subtle shift? They've moved from secular resources now to begin to look toward their view, their thought, their idea of the divine, the priests and the rule, uh, and and the uh, diviners of their own country. Now, I just have to tell you that that's one of the ways God begins to get our attention, isn't it? He starts to send pain into our life. That's exactly what this story is telling. People begin to reach out to God in some form when pain lasts long enough, or when it's intense enough. People reach out. God. From pastoral experience, I have to tell you that is just natural. It's just normal. It's what we all do, and it's what they were doing here. Most vivid uh, recent illustration I know of this way of God speaking to us is in former First Lady Laura's book, uh, Laura Bush's new book, Spoken from the Heart. Some of you may have read this. One of the most difficult sections in that book is the memory she had of a 1963 automobile collision in her hometown of Midland, uh, Texas. She was just a high school girl at the time, about 17, and she was riding along with a friend of hers, and she entered an intersection, and in the intersection she hit another car with another high school student, and she attended high school with with that same student, and the other student was rushed to the hospital and pronounced dead on arrival when he got there. In the aftermath, Laura Bush said, All 
I felt was guilty, very, very guilty. In fact, I still do. It's a guilt, she says, I will carry for the rest of my life. The whole time, the whole time I was praying that the person in the other car was alive. In my mind, I was calling, please, God, please, God, please, God, over and over and over. You hear it? There's the pain, and there's that almost instinctive crying out to God. The two seem to go naturally together. You've probably heard that statement by C.S. Lewis that says, God whispers to us in our pleasures, and He speaks to us in our consciences, but He shouts to us in our pains. He says, pain is the megaphone He uses to arouse a deaf world. That's true. But there's another statement that goes along with that that takes us a little deeper. It's by a lesser-known lady. Her name is Simone Weil. And she says the extreme greatness of Christianity lies in this. It lies in the fact that 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 it does not immediately seek a supernatural remedy for suffering. Instead, it looks for a supernatural use for it. Use for pain? use for pain what use could there possibly be I think the short answer is simply to draw us closer to him when there's pain and when we cry out he's saying look I want to know you better I want to draw you closer to me how does that work well in one of his books John uh, Wenham tells of a Malayan soldier who was captured in World War II he was a communist at the time And so he was tortured by the Japanese soldiers. Horrible, brutal experience in his life. In fact, he said, as he looks back on it from a later time, he said that that was just the very kind of evidence, as a communist, he used to use against the Christian missionaries that were serving in his village and teaching in his school. He used to taunt them with sayings like, how can you believe that a good God exists when there's so much suffering and pain? Look around, he says. Look at all the pain. Isn't it plain that the things you're saying are nonsense? And then he confessed to John Wynn. He says that something very strange began to happen in his own experience. In his pain. In his pain. What the missionaries had taught about Jesus started to come home to him about Jesus dying on the cross and suffering and he said in my pain I cast myself on the love of Christ now I don't understand that I can't tell you how that works J.I. Packer somewhere says that uh, he calls this the law of the harvest he says the law can be stated like this before there is blessing anywhere there will first be suffering somewhere He quotes that verse in the New Testament that talks about Jesus saying, unless a kernel of wheat falls in the ground and dies, it can't bear fruit. And then Packer says, here's the quote, Jesus asks all who are his to live by that same law of the harvest that he himself lived by. Every experience of pain, grief, frustration, disappointment, being hurt by others, it's a little death. When we serve the Savior in our worldly world, there are many such deaths to be died. There are, aren't there? A lot of pain in this world. 
call to us is to endure since God sanctifies our endurance for fruitfulness in the lives of others. And I probably the only thing I would add to that, and in our own lives, He grows me that way. So when you're hurting, listen up. doesn't necessarily mean you've done anything wrong, but if you'll let Him, God will use it either to help you get to know Him or to get to know Him better. It, at the lowest level, of the way God says, listen up. There's another thing I see in chapter 6. Chapter 6, oh, look at verse 6 of this chapter. Uh, The priests now are giving their response. Uh, They're saying uh, uh, to the Philistines in general, why are you hardening your hearts? You're doing the same thing the Egyptians and Pharaoh did. Remember when he treated the Israelites harshly and they did not send the Israelites so that they could go out on their way? Question, Where did the priests and the diviners learn this? They didn't have our Bible. They didn't have a Bible that they could go out in a newsstand and pick up. and. Where did they hear this? We we really don't know. Uh, They may have heard it from some Israeli neighbors. They may have heard it from a movie they saw. A song somebody sang. A rumor somewhere. I've got to tell you, it's been 300 years since this happened. Israel has been in Palestine 300 years. 300 years this message has gotten around in sort of a what I would call a viral way. I think that's the contemporary terminology. It doesn't come from some special source. It just, it's just out there. It's just out there. The message is out there. It's, it's God speaking to us in viral bits of His infective story. It's just out there. Now, the author doesn't spend a lot of time here, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time either. But as I read this verse, I, I couldn't help thinking to myself, you know, I don't remember... I've read some of the Bible. And I don't remember all that I read. Do you? I mean, I'll read a story and then... You know, it kind of disappears on me. I'm getting, I'm getting that age. You may not have noticed that, but, but one of the things I know is that the little pieces that I remember, I'm unfruitful, like Sarah in the Old Testament. I don't remember all the story, but I know that I'm unfruitful. I can get bitter, like uh, Naomi in the Book of Ruth. I've been depressed. I've been discouraged sometimes after even a major spiritual victory, like Elijah. I wanted to run away from God, like Jonah. I'm uh, the prodigal son who lived for the Father's things rather than for the Father in the New Testament. I've denied the Lord. I've put my foot in my mouth. I've fallen asleep when somebody else needed my prayers, just like Peter. I've been timid and afraid and needed encouragement, just like Timothy. I can't always remember the full story, but I remember the viral bits of the message. They're there. That's the genius of the biblical narrative. The stories we learned in Sunday school and stumbled across somewhere in our experience or seen twisted in the media or heard sung in a song or seen a reference to in a poem or a book somewhere. Those little pieces of viral story, they get through and they get through in a powerful way. That's another way God speaks to us in this world. It's right here in First Hand. Samuel chapter 6. Now third, 1 Samuel chapter 6. Here's, this is an interesting story. Here's the advice. It's almost a test to prove that God doesn't exist rather than that He does. 
And so the priests say, now this is what you should do. Here's how to test whether God really is behind all this pain. Get a new cart, get it ready, verse 7 says, and put two new cow- two cows that have calved and have never been yoked. Hitch the cows to the cart, but take their calves away and pen them up. Now, which direction do you think the cows are going to want to go? Are they want to go back to their calves? Or are they going to want to go down to Israel, down to Palestine, down to where, you know, uh, the test would be fulfilled? Well, my guess is, knowing what tiny little bit I know about cows, they're going to want to go back to the calves, right? Verse 8 says, Take the ark of the Lord and put it on the cart, and in a chest beside it put gold objects you're sending back to them as a guilt offering, and send it on its way, but keep watching. If it goes up to its own territory toward Beth Shemesh, then the Lord has brought this great disaster on us. But if it does not, then we will know that it was not his hand that struck us and that it happened to us by chance. Now, that seems like a test you almost couldn't win. But you know what happens? The cart against all the odds. I can't explain this to you rationally. It's, it's kind of a semi-miracle. The cart, where you would expect the two cows to go back to their calves, they don't. They go to Israel, lowing all the way. It's sort of like, we don't want to go. We don't want to go. We don't want to go. All the way down the road. And they finally end up in a town of all places where there are Levites who are going to offer these calves as a sacrifice. Now, the cows didn't know that. And they end up in a town in a little plot of field named after a man, Joshua. Now, does that ring any bells with any of you? Joshua in the Old Testament. All of this by accident? All of this by happenstance? I don't think so. Some of you will be familiar with uh, St. Augustine's story of his conversion. St. Augustine was uh, one of the church's great leaders uh, in the early centuries. But until he was about age 32, uh, Augustine was driven by ambition, and he was a passionate man. Uh, He actually had a mistress that he lived with, and he didn't want to give up his ambition, and he didn't want to give up his his mistress, uh, 32. 386, however, he moved to Milan and came under the preaching of, uh, of a bishop, Ambrose. And for the first time, he began to hear the Christian message proclaimed in a way that he could no longer ignore. It began to get to him. He tells a story in his book, The Confessions. He says, The tumult in my heart tossed me out into the garden, a, a little secret place back behind his home. It says, I was twisting and turning in my chains. And suddenly, I heard a voice as if it might be a boy or a girl chanting, Tola Lege, Tola Lege, which just simply means pick up and read. Pick up and read. He says, well, I seized the book that I had been reading and I turned it to the first page that I came to. And there I read... This is from the book of Romans. This wouldn't have been the one I would have picked. This wouldn't have been the John 3.16 I would have picked. Romans chapter 13, not in riots and drunken parties, not in eroticism and indecencies, not in strife and rivalry, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh. And that's the day Augustine says I was converted. That's the message he needed to hear. That was the verse for him. 
Now, Augustine looked back on that experience, and as he began to think about it, he said, you know, where did that where did that sing-song chanting come from? He says, it was from no song or game that I could remember. In fact, I don't even know if there were any children that lived around me, he says. As he began to think about it, he said, you know what? I just simply interpreted this as God speaking His divine command to me. Have you ever had those strange experiences where you don't know what to do with them? You can't rationally explain them. I think there are a lot of people out there that are having those kinds of things. And I think it's one of the ways God is saying, listen up. Listen up. I have something I want to say to you. Well, verses 13, 14, and 15 gives us a fourth way that God speaks in this passage. I just see in this passage ordinary people. But they're, they're doing some extraordinary, ordinary kinds of things. And so what do I mean when I say that? Well, they're the people of Beth Shemesh. And look at verse 13. It just says they're harvesting. They're just getting on with their life. You know, they're just going to work. They're, remember, there's been this really significant tragedy in Israel's history at this point. They've lost the ark. They've lost the battle. The Philistines are, are, are controlling their country. It is similar. It is similar to the kind of thing we're seeing in the Gulf Coast. It was tragedy. Every day they woke up to the news that, you know, the ark has fallen. There's a leak out there. Somebody plugged the hole. They woke up there, and yet they just kept on doing the ordinary stuff. Hmm. It says the five rulers saw this, verse 16. The five rulers saw the people of God just going on with life. Now then the second thing they saw is the last part of uh, that verse. It says uh, they were there harvesting their wheat in the valley. And when they looked up, they saw the cart and what? <laughs> they were happy. Every little signal that God was alive and well brought joy to them. Did they hear a testimony from the mission field? They were happy. Did they hear somebody say, God's made a difference in my life? They were happy. They were getting on with business. They hadn't given up on life in the middle of the tragedy. And they were, you know what? They just rejoiced in the things they saw in the Lord. And then here's this, this last part. What they did with that cart, they chopped it up into kindling wood. They set it on fire. They took the cows that were leading the cart down there and they used them as a burnt offering before the Lord. I mean, here they broke right into the middle of their day and they worshipped. Go figure. There you are. You're on it. I'm not recommending that you do this at your job. You know, certainly don't go out and burn somebody's cows. But what they did here was just basically the first opportunity they had. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. You know, they're worshipping God. Now, it says in verse 16 that the five rulers of the Philistines saw all this. It was a way God was speaking. He sees our lives. He sees ordinary Jim going to his ordinary job, doing ordinary things, but finding great joy. And whenever he hears things that God has done, and he sees ordinary Jim or ordinary Mary or ordinary Tom just breaking out in praise at the strangest stuff, he sees this. And that's one of the ways... God speaks into our world. Now that brings me to the very last point, and the last one is really the most important one, because that's the one that wraps it all up. So far it's sort of hidden, it's sort of invisible. And this last one is going to say, all right, there are hints all along the way, but now here's the reality that this has all been hinting at. So let me show you something. 
if you will look with me at a couple of things. First of all, let me just remind you that in the Old Testament, there were five basic offerings that were outlined in the book of Leviticus. One of the offerings is a burnt offering, and another one is a grain offering, and then there's a fellowship offering, and then there's a sin offering and a guilt offering. And you're probably already lost. I know I typically get lost when I'm already over there reading those things. But look, the New International Version says the sequence of the way these offerings are offered is is a pretty significant part of their of their importance of their value first sin had to be dealt with and so you would offer a sin or a guilt offering now once you had dealt with your sin second the worshiper committed himself wholly to god with a burnt offering by the way that burnt offering it's called a holocaust ever heard that word the holocaust Israel felt that it had been a whole bloody burnt offering in World War II. The Holocaust, what the Nazis did to them. This is where that word comes from. The, the burnt offering, the Holocaust. And it really really implied in the Old Testament, after you gave your sin offering, what you did was you gave your whole self to God in response to His forgiveness of your sin. And then the third thing that would happen would be this communion or grain offering that would be offered. It was a fellowship offering. You've forgiven my sin. I rededicate my life to you, and now I've restored fellowship with you. Okay? That's the way the offerings worked in the Old Testament. Now look in verses 3 and 4 of chapter 6. They're getting advice from the priests, and in verse 3, the priests are telling them, If you return the ark of God of Israel, do not send it away empty, but by all men send a guilt offering. They feel their sin. They feel it. And they offer the offering. But look, there's no reference to the Holocaust. There's no whole burnt offering. They don't give themselves. Nor is there a reference in this passage to any kind of fellowship offering. They feel no sense of communion with God. They're just trying to get God off their back. Now, if you'll look a little bit further, say at verse 15, the Levites took down the ark of the Lord, that is off the cart, together with the chest containing the gold objects, that's all this mice and stuff that uh, they were sending back, and on that day, the people of Beth Shemesh offered whole burnt offerings to Holocaust. They dedicated themselves wholly to the Lord and made sacrifices. That's the communion, the, the fellowship offering. So they gave themselves, but where's the guilt offering? Where's the guilt offering? Let me show you a couple more slides here. Let's go back and remind ourselves of the ark. This ark really symbolizes the gospel of Jesus Christ. On the top of that ark, we saw that there were cherubim, and they were on this lid. That lid could be slid off, you see, and you could insert things in this box. Now, we know what was in the box. It was the broken law, the broken covenant of the Israelites. And so the lid was to cover for that broken law. Now, let's go to the next chart. I think the ark could be called the gospel in a box. Now, look at this. God desires to meet with us. That's what he's been telling us all through 1 Samuel chapter 6. He sends pain. He sends strange events. He sends other believers. He sends all these things into our life telling us he wants to meet with us. God wants to meet with us. But there are broken commandments in the box. We're guilty people. Even the Philistines felt their guilt. The cherubim, those cherubs that sit on top of the ark, the first time we meet them in the Bible, you know where they are? They're in the Garden of Eden. 
They're there with a flaming sword. They're keeping Adam and Eve out of the garden. That's what they do. They protect us from getting to God. Well, how are we going to get there? Well, remember there's a broken covenant, and unless that broken covenant is covered over, we can't get to God, and that's exactly what the atonement cover does. You slide the lid back on, you sprinkle the blood on it, and the New Testament tells us, Jesus is our atonement cover. Do you get it? The gospel in a box. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins and not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. It's all there. All of the other signs have been leading us to this point. The fullness of the revelation of Jesus Christ. The Philistines had it in front of them the whole time. They just didn't bother to ask what it all meant. And that's the difference. So does God speak to us today? You bet. He speaks in a variety of ways. I haven't listed all of them, just some of them that are here. He speaks, I think, in our pain. He speaks in bits of that viral story that sneak through that we can't escape. He speaks to us in those unexplained events in life. He speaks to us other ordinary people around us every day. But most importantly and most clearly and most vividly, He speaks to us through Jesus Christ if we will simply listen up. So here's the question I think that's really posed by 1 Samuel chapter 6. It's not, does God speak? But what will we do when we hear Him speak? Will we send him away? That's what they kept wanting to do in 1 Samuel chapter 6. Or will we listen up? That's the message of this chapter. Would you pray with me? Lord, how we thank you for this this powerful message. It's got so much here that we want to unpack so many more things. And yet, Lord, we get the point. We get it. You love us. You want to speak to us. You have spoken to us. We just need to hear what you have to say. And Lord, so give us the ability to do that, we pray. In Jesus' name.